When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. If you are ever wondering if Throughline was just the mad stylings of one individual who apparently didn't get enough essay writing in school, then you'd be half right. In truth, Throughline is a joint effort, born into existence from the goodwill and foundation of a number of others. This podcast is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier place to find music and entertainment-related podcasts covering a whole range of wide-reaching or niche topics, really specific stuff like superfan level material. Home of the first HD podcast, they've also developed a brand new app, so you can explore the Pantheon catalog free from the entanglements of big corporations. It's super easy to pick up, and it helps me out a ton. Second, Throughline is a spinoff of the music discovery podcast Audio Judo, a well-researched yet entertaining journey through musical breakthrough albums spanning the 1950s to today, giving the history of the music as well as the personal connections the hosts have with the music. They're approaching their 100th episode, so there's a ton of content to dive into. You can listen to them wherever you podcast. Now, today, we have a very special presentation. A debut album by a band that, at this point, has little more than 650 monthly listeners on Spotify. An absolute up-and-comer in the industry, but quickly becoming one of my favorites of the year, and possibly even beyond. It's Karma in the Killjoys, Hellscape. Now, if you've been following Throughline with any regular consistency, you'll recognize that name. We've been posting a ton more than normal in anticipation of this episode for one key reason. Last week, we were given the privilege of interviewing the band just before the release of their album. For a bit of a more in-depth understanding of the formation of the band, its history, its songwriting, etc., definitely check out that interview. It's full of a ton of incredibly interesting insight into the band. Or wait until last after the breakdown. It depends on which read of the album you want to hear first, mine or theirs, but absolutely go check it out either now or later. Now, I will do my best here to give a brief rundown of the band in the meantime. Karma and the Killjoys started as the lead singers, Rain Scott Catois and Sidney Myers' Passion Project, a labor of love to work out feelings or ideas that had been weighing on them. 
It's only fitting, being theater majors, that the first method of exploring deeper emotional states was through singing, as that is, in and of itself, a key fragment of musicals, moving from talking to singing when the simple words can't express the emotion any longer. As the songs developed, they started playing at school events or small festivals until a branching out and rebranding occurred to round out the musical elements in the form of a band and form what is now called Karma and the Kill joys. This saw the introduction of bassist Tim Marchand, drummer Thomas Vercher, and guitarist Michael Blunt. Around this same time, they were discovered by Johnny Palazzato, founder of PAL Productions in Baton Rouge, that saw them finally be able to turn their ideas for songs, their stage songs, into fully-fledged recordings in 2021, recording at least 13 songs, produced by Grammy Award-winning producer Tony Daigle, of which, well, 13 would go on to form Hell's They've performed a few times at local venues in Baton Rouge, including an album release show just yesterday, December 8th, 2022. So if you're out there, keep your eyes peeled. And hopefully, one day soon, they'll be able to visit your hometown, wherever that may be. And that's where we are now. They've only just begun. From this point, there's not a whole lot else to say, other than to again urge you all to go listen to the interview we put out a week ago, listen to the album as well, and or strap in now as we go over the highs and lows, the surface level and the buried abstract in coverage of this week's album, a long one, it's Karma and the Killjoys, Hellscape. So I can't sleep a wink or even blink for fear I'm missing anything. I'm on the brink of apple drinking lenses. Think! It's a magical hill when I see the world through you. From the counterculture stylings of David Bowie in the late 60s, now to an album that is not even yet released at the time of writing this episode, and definitely released by the time the episode comes out in the end of 2022, the general consensus of a lot of music that the public is not having such a good go of it is pretty much unchanged. In that past period, the period of the late 60s, the first vast changes to how people of color were treated by the American government were being codified. The general feeling of a wish for peace and a fight to end war as an institution were in full swing, and gender and sexually fluid people in the modern era were just breaking major ground for their right to be heard, respected, and accepted. Not so different now. With the rising shadow of neo-Nazi and fascist groups clamoring in the background with more vile hate than ever for the eradication of supposedly inferior races, with the looming worry of World War III and major humanitarian crimes afoot globally, and the recent attempts by American Republicans to tarnish and rebuke women and LGBTIQA individual hard-fought civil liberties, today, unfortunately, feels a lot more like then, 60 years ago, than it has any right It's honestly surprising that any of us are able to get out of bed some days, let alone head to our jobs and and toil away at an existence that feels tenuous and out of our grasp. The exhaustion that must be accumulated for those who have been in the fight for those 60 years and beyond. The whiplash of those born in the 80s or 90s to have witnessed what seemed like a light at the end of the tunnel, a way forward to a more utopian future, only to have the rug pulled out in the expected decline in the waves of historical peace and growth, but one that feels like there is no hill to climb back up in the distance. And finally, the anger and frustration of those young enough 
to have lived through the majority of that decline, to have seen things get worse and worse without reasonable or expected intervention on a global scale. What kind of life is there to lead in any of these categories? One too tired to find something fulfilling at the end, or one made unprepared by a period of hope that leaves them hopeless and wanting, or one so late to the party that they're the only ones sober enough to be able to clean up the damn mess, a mess they'll be cleaning up their entire lives. No room for anything else, if they even make it that long. So, no surprise then that young people are finding themselves in relationships, in marriages, in partnerships, or love, or whatever, less and less than ever before. How can there be time or energy for it when everything else is so screwed up? But this is a human drive. This is something almost biologically innate for the majority of us. A desire for romantic love and connection. A wish for someone to ride life with until the bitter end. Propelled by each other's dreams and hopes and desires. Human connection is innate. And a key variation of this is deep personal love that builds a tangible and useful bond. An understanding often missed elsewhere. But damn, it's already hard on its own. Trying to wrestle with a disintegrating world while at the same time navigating the minefield of a dating landscape and the chaotic, unpredictable nature of the waning and waxing of your own capacity for love is no easy, straightforward task. And this, all of this, is precisely where we find Karma and the Killjoy's debut album, Hellscape. So, how did I approach this feeling? Well, there's a key lyrical moment fairly late into the album that gives us a first glimpse at this cohabitation of currency, where one of the lead singers, of which there are two, directly parallels the pain of heartbreak or a lack of love with the frustration of witnessing the infrastructure of their society crumbling. And another point to our theory, this takes place in the namesake song of the album, Hellscape on 9th Street. There's a hole in my chest. There's a hole in the street. Now, obviously, this could mean a fair few things. It could be talking about the emptiness of heartbreak or loneliness allegorized through the failing infrastructure of a society. But it could also be about war and the human and property casualties that are prevalent in such a setting. It could also also be about the inconsiderate nature of modern politics and how it fails to address the problems of its cities and its people. They occupy the same space, after all. The buildings, roads, and people, and all struggle with the failings of the others. But one of the key components of our looks at these albums, or rather, basically the main component is the organization of the songs and how that organization informs or sets the foundation for the story as a whole. And what we see play out across the album is an intermixing, a regular flip-flop between songs that address romance and songs that address society. Now, there's a bit of blending in these categories, to be expected, and many of the songs that are more societally bent also make slight or significant reference to love, but of the 13 songs on the album, six of them are more broadly focused on society, and six of them are more broadly focused on romance or the lack thereof. Wait a second, you ask, that's only 12 songs. 
not 13. And yes, you're right, but also, we're not to that part of the episode yet, so hold on to all of those gosh darn horses. The important thing to note here is that they are not specifically split. Instead, they are pretty evenly spread throughout, often even flipping back and forth song after song. In fact, if romance is the left side and society is the right side, the album would click back and forth in the following pattern. Left, left, right, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, right. There is never more than two songs from one of the categories in a row. But even more telling than this is the music of these two categories. While this theory starts to lose steam in the ending three-song run as the two styles begin to merge and mix, these two categories generally seem to have wildly different approaches to the songwriting. One is much more standard rock fare, though to be fair, there's little about this record that is standard, much to its benefit. The other is much more exploratory and performative, imbued with elements of other genres and even approaching a style at times that feels influenced by musical theater. Of course, the former is the style for romance songs, and the second is the style for societal ones. In fact, don't just take my word for it, just listen to a couple sections of each. It's pretty clear that there is a different vibe being given when approaching these two different subjects. One of something that connects to everyone, and the other being outspoken and rebellious, clashing against trend and attempting to skew expectations. But then, alright, it seems that our general throughline has been given a fairly reasonable defense. An album that operates in an uneasy space between the want for romance and the want for change, and attempts to navigate how to reconcile those two fair all-consuming feelings with each other. But what exactly is the point of that? Why drive these into conflict with each other, competing for space in the record and possibly splitting reaction to it or alienating audience due to the dual direction? Well, let's find out. Starting, of course, with song one, Fate Is You. Alright, well, this is odd already. This is a difficult song to parse. Many of the lyrics here point to the protagonist's affinity for a lover, an affinity that feels fairly destructive, but without giving the space for the opportunity to reproach it. Lines like, set me on fire with my desire, you do it well, and with mass destruction your seduction broke right through, feel positive in the most violent way possible, blurring the line between someone in a burning intense love and someone in a rickish 
crocheting, problematic relationship, one that causes intense highs and lows, pain and passion simultaneously. The song moves directly from Robbing Me Blind to You Made Me Strong in the exact same verse, implying volatility in the emotional dynamic between the two characters. And yet, the protagonist is so desperately crying out that this lover is their destiny, their true path, that it's hard to argue against it. Are we wrong for our interpretation? What's really going on here? A common thread of the album, this blurring of intention is essential for, wouldn't you have guessed it, setting the foundation of the album. In some ways, the audience is being set up to doubt, or at least feel as confused as, the narrator. We are given a number of important details about the protagonist in this song, however, which allows us to start forming a full picture of the story throughout, including what's being orchestrated here, the backstory. First of all, we get the pretty obvious sense that the protagonist is young, well within the youngest realm of individuals we talked about before, that group that is angry and frustrated and saddled with the task of fixing the world, lest the world and we along with it perish. And the main indication we have for this young classification is that the character, at least in this song, approaches this situation in kind of a naive and or dramatic way. Drama isn't in and of itself a problem problematic thing. In fact, many people have been more dramatic for less than what is implied in the song, but it's hard to argue that ripping your hair out or welcoming what you feel will be harmful to yourself because it seems like destiny is not at least a little dramatic and or well naive. Now again, these could very well be intended as metaphor for that intense unstoppable love we described earlier, but it also very well could be intended as the opposite, again emphasizing the shaky amount of trust in the reliability of the narrator or the situation. But either way, the next song, Water Under the Bridge, very quickly orchestrates a consequence situation out of this song. Aha, so it must have been about a problematic relationship, because this one most assuredly is about a relationship that sees the protagonist giving one last warning, threatening that she's ready to pack up and leave on a moment's notice. I'll keep one foot out the door. It is seemed at this stage that the feelings have soured. Gone are the violent proclamations of love, instead replaced by imagery of being lost in a tidal flood. Not only are there the references to the eponymous water under the bridge, and also sandbags around my knees, sandbags being a key staple in flood-prone areas for flood mitigation and prevention, there's also a double entendre line in the middle. You need me until you don't. I'm at the end of my rope. Now, traditionally, being at the end of your rope is an idiom for being one little thing away from losing what little patience was remaining and being done with the situation, likely signifying that she will be leaving this relationship. However, despite the powerful vocals of the music, a dark presence that shows some strength, it's obvious that the character here is on the verge of drowning, and being at the end of her rope is also a curious metaphor for someone who is about 
about to be washed away, unable to hang on to this connection anymore, soon to be gone in the rising pain from the overflowing water under your bridge. Another twist of a common idiom. This one in particular is typically meant to mean the things in the past that have been forgotten, brought downstream and out of mind. But this song is turning that idea on its head and implying that those bygones were not actually bygones, that they're definitely still present, still looming, and are now being released in this tidal wave, raising the river significantly and flooding the levees. There's a real sense of fear here, a dark understanding of the situation she's gotten herself into. There's a level of distrust in the future, and a near rebellion that forms in the bridge as a result of this, a calling out of the situation that begins to veer on the side of abstraction, seeming like it could be starting to talk outwardly rather than just about what's directly happening with her and her partner. Was the power in your hands worth ripping out my tongue? This is a pretty scathing remark to say about someone who you're, as far as the song is concerned, still actively in a relationship with. So it's not unlikely that this is not just about this situation, that this is commenting on a bigger issue in society about the silencing of women, especially imperfect ones. And we really get the impression that this is a bigger dilemma, that this is starting to spiral into a new space here due to the voices. Now, eagle-eyed listeners will likely have noticed that this singer sounds different from the first song. And in fact, your sharp senses would be right. This band has two lead singers. Not incredibly uncommon, but important for the examination of this album. Having two different singers in these first two songs opens a new line of consideration. Are these different aspects of a character's psyche, or two different characters, or the most boring of the three, is it just two singers stop trying to read into everything you nankaboop? And while it'd be tempting to take the third option, especially considering it's always wildly amusing to call someone a nankaboop, I would argue for the second option. These are two different characters. And in fact, most of the album is functioning not as one story, but as many simultaneous stories of individuals learning to exist in this space between love and rebellion. The bridge from this song even includes a very apparent harmony with the singer from the first song, merging their storylines together and introducing this element of community experience. And if that didn't convince you, the next song, Amelia, will. This is by far the most performative song of the album up until this point, and it's also the only one that has three different singers. And wouldn't you know it, this song is an unsteady satire about shunning romance in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, not spending unnecessary time on lost relationships in the modern world. This is a chorus of voices experiencing the same world together and feeling the same conflicts upon encountering it. In Water Under the Bridge, it's apparent that the protagonist's partner is feeling some type of negative way about the state of the relationship, and the protagonist herself is 
is very clearly on the way out. In Amelia, the very first verse directly addresses at least a parallel of this situation, asking why you stay and why you let him get his way when you know he's got his eye on another man's goodbye. Essentially, why waste your energy on this relationship because he's already moved on? to another newly single girl. The vast majority of lines in this song address modern romance as a pitfall toward a successful and personally fulfilling life. You could go so much further than the day he asks your father. Oh, are things not perfect? Sweetheart, was the wait not worth it? Years you're losing by the day, what is your reward to stay? These are all pretty aggressive remarks on women that are just generally in relationships. It's clear that some are remarks about potentially unfulfilling or even approaching abusive relationships, which like, yes, of course, those are not good relationships to be in, but the song seems to take a bit of a scorched earth approach to relationships at all. In the grand scheme of the story, it seems that the generalized character being burned by a passionate love they put everything into has receded into nihilistic feelings on romance. But the song, and subsequently the album and band, are keenly aware of this, as the choruses of this song are incredibly tongue-in-cheek. Take a listen. modern woman doesn't feel. She'll never die. She won't quit, and you know she'll never kneel. What? She'll never die? Now, there is an argument to be made that this phrasing is about a belief here, that this archetype of a modern, strong, independent woman is here to stay. But what seems more likely is that this is a breakdown of that very same archetype, that there is a general incomplete sense of semi-recent feminism that implies that women are not allowed to be fragile or submissive or home-oriented as it diminishes the fight for women to be equal. But the real crux of this situation is that feminism as a whole is about the right for a woman to choose the type of person she wants to be, that she has the opportunity to determine how she wants to live her life. And barring any committing of or advocating for hate or harm on others, she should be allowed to live that way. In the context of the album, it's clear that the protagonist is struggling with these mixed feelings of a wish for a romantic connection with the understanding that she shouldn't be treated the way she had been treated, an artifact of a bigger concern with society. But rather than finding a way to coexist in this space, she doubles down on foregoing love entirely in the following song, Meant to Play. We are positioned here at the end of the first third of the album. This album, being a tad bit longer and coming out in 2022, does not conform 100% and fittingly to the standard structure of many albums. Instead, it functions in thirds. Not perfect thirds, but still, you'll see what I mean. The first third is what I'm deeming the heartbreak chapter, and it's really exemplified by this song, a song about not really feeling capable of being loved. 
Love is not a game I'm meant to play. Rather than being about a relationship that has fallen apart due to cheating or some other event like the last two songs, this one instead explores a kind of unrequited love, one intensely passionate on one side and unreciprocated on the other. This further elucidates how the album is exploring a multitude of relationships and the way people, especially modern young people, collectively tend to handle such situations. This menagerie of different perspectives is actually a lot like another album we covered before, The Internet's Hive Mind. At the beginning, you wouldn't be remiss for thinking that this song again feels like it's treading this space of Amelia, talking critically about another girl for an approach to a situation that the protagonist doesn't agree with. The first few verses see the singer launch a number of barbs at her crush's partner, claiming that she works on you like magic, I watched you fall under her spell, and going so far as to compare her to a drug, an addiction of sorts that he is unable to escape. At two songs in a row, then, it is swiftly arriving at the line that delineates between satire and not, making it nearly unclear whether or not the band is attempting to criticize these women or still encounter the situation with clarity and tact. Yet many of these concerns are assuaged by the outro verse, a simple little playout that has an important line that radiates an amount of self-awareness. I see why you love her, because I do too. This grants an entirely new meaning to the complaints of the singer throughout the song, reformatting the conversation into presenting as less of a criticism on the girl and more of a criticism on herself, a reprobation for being so negative, and an illumination on the fact that she is less upset at the girl than she is at finding this romance so hard to navigate. Why can't it be her? But that growth isn't one-dimensional either. A bridge in the middle of the song introduces another callback to the previous songs while setting the stage for the next chapter. Who are you to make me question myself at all? Buried in the middle of the song is a call to independence, a spark to have herself be the warden of her feelings. Not necessarily to not feel, as she obviously does throughout the song, but instead to not let others determine how she feels. And this independence, movement away from romance, and the social stylings of Amelia all push us into an exploration of that modern woman described just a few songs ago in the second section of the album, which I've titled Rebellion. The first song of which being Tell Me All Your Lies. The last four songs have been largely rock adjacent, with Amelia being a bit of a pop standout differentiator, a performative style that explored societal feminism. This song signals a pretty dramatic shift. This song swings and sways between a Latin exploration and an exclamative theater performance that turns its sights on pious imposters, individuals who use their ties to religion or lies about their intentions to ensnare and take advantage of others. Oh, he's a man of the church. Every day he lies in wait. 
The protagonist has seemed to take on a bit of a vendetta spree, either literally or metaphorically infiltrating these individuals' carefully constructed fabrications and exposing the true nature of their actions. This is a pretty intensely scorched earth approach to attempting to eradicate troublesome actors, but the song makes it pretty clear that it has begun to take a toll on the singer. Take a listen to the second chorus. I'm on fire, now here comes my demise. There's an element of rage here that feels all-consuming, as her judgment is continuously deposed on those she deems sinful. He's a man of wrath, the only things kept him alive. There's even reference at the end of the song to removing a mask, as the singer belts out for him to confess those lies, those instruments of destruction that may have wronged her in the past. The album, however, takes a detour after this song into a space that handles its frustrations with more consideration. Whereas Tell Me All Your Lies was mutually destructive, constructing a critical sphere that's purpose was conviction, the captain explores a space of criticism that weighs the effects of that which went into creating the problematic traits and behaviors. A family of German immigrants who swore your mother hated you. Your sister sings a different song, so which one of you sings the truth? Much like the song before, this song spares no expense outlining the consequences of the captain's actions, and doesn't imply that he doesn't deserve what came to him, but it takes special care to treat him as a human, rather than just a lecherous snake. Now, to reiterate something that's already been said on this podcast, this is not to say that everyone is worthy of the benefit of the doubt. And it's actually possible that in this song, the singer has overcorrected from the last episode, as the captain is a rather vile creature at times and fully deserves his punishment. But the effects of this consideration and subsequent humanization are key vehicles in showing the foundational suffering present in society, that which was founded long ago and has trickled down through generations, a type of generational trauma. In the second verse section of the song, we are given a glimpse of the captain's childhood. He had suffered from what he believed was his mother's ire, as well as the suffering of being raised in an alcoholic family. These are difficult situations and are likely instrumental in the past trauma to his family, which includes such awful things as pushing his youngest down the stairs, or chasing his wife straight out of town, or fundamentally telling his son to kill him, likely as a test of toxic manhood. The song ends by wishing him peace in his death, however, an incredibly mature and restrained take that refuses to distill the nature of evil in his personality to a self-created attitude, rather one thrust upon him and perpetuated by his self-imposed isolation. By no means was he a good person, but it can hardly be stated that it was entirely his fault. There's a system at play here that actively works against people living a moral, altruistic life. And through this examination of the fragility of legacy and the fear of being an instrument of destruction through one's lack of emotional intelligence or tact, as well as the protagonist's general growth and maturity, we arrive at words. I turn the page for something new, but look behind, do you see? 
This is an incredibly powerful song that sits directly in the center of the album. This is still in the rebellion section, but here it's a rebellion against lying to yourself about how you feel. And it's nearly silent as well. The only real instruments here being the lead singer and the piano, with only minor musical flourishes here and there from other instruments and harmonies. This is the real turning point in the album. The first six songs have been about the struggles the protagonist, or as we stated before, the protagonists, have been experiencing. Destructive, dependent love, heartbreak, a resolve to never waste time on romance again, a belief that you'll never find romance again, a dismantling of those who abuse love for personal gain as rebellions against what happened to them, and finally, an understanding that the lack of love or the growth of hatred and anger is born and perpetuated by a deeper system. Now here, the protagonist finally makes a decision for themselves, a moment of realization that some current love is not enough for them. A decision that tears them up inside, but that is inevitable. It's impossible to lie and hide. Take a listen to the end of the song as the singer tries to construct a fantasy of resolution, nearly willing themselves to stay. What if I wrote a song? What if I gave you my heart without the fear? Yet, in the end, they still admit that it's over. There's nothing that can be done. It's a horrible feeling knowing that you're falling out of love or perhaps finding the understanding that you never truly were in love in the first place. It eats at you. You end up thinking about it for days or weeks or months, trying everything to convince yourself to stay and say that I loved her then, but I love her better now despite knowing that's not the truth, knowing on one side of the relationship that it's over far before your partner does. There's never an easy way to word it either, always looking for another way. But a key part of living with love is knowing when it's the right time to let it go and not string yourself or your partner on for longer, ending up making things worse in the end. However, the song makes it very clear that this is not the end. And this is the moment where we see an element of unreal change. It would be very easy to abandon this individual as soon as the breakup occurred. But the singer here is allowing the space for support beyond merely the realm of a romantic partnership. This is an incredibly modern situation. Staying amicable and supportive friends with your ex and shows a bigger push toward platonic relationships in the younger generations. For a good many years, many friendships were stunted in a way due to the very aggressive nature of the monogamous romantic bubble. It was often more frowned upon and even taboo to present significant affection to anyone who wasn't your partner, breeding discontent between partners and malformed connections beyond that pair. Now, this newer approach is far from necessary, but it shows a clear pattern in younger generations toward personal community and pillars of support that are not mutually exclusive with relationships, breeding a much more tight-knit group of individuals in such a way that there may be a light at the end of the tunnel in the future. But regardless of the good, the bad will always strike. But it's really how you deal with it sometimes that matters. And in Keep It To Myself, it's abundantly clear the significant amount of growth the protagonist has encountered.
This is honestly probably one of the most straightforward songs on the record up until this point. A banger that kickstarts the back of the album and again promotes an internal rebellion. It's an interesting parallel to some of the songs in the heartbreak section. Essentially, the song is playing into the obsession from the earlier songs, likely a bit of a relapse into the feelings mentioned in Fate Is You and Meant to Play, with a bit of the player character from Water Under the Bridge. But the key part of this song is the fact that the main character is refusing to entertain these thoughts, instead keeping them to myself. Sure, there's a sickness in my bones and it's calling out to you, and every sound your body makes is music, but these fantasies will remain fantasies because I refuse to engage in a relationship that makes me feel the way I had felt. Obviously, it's rough, as any addiction typically is, but this refusal to acknowledge it in favor of avoiding that which is bad for my health shows real growth, especially considering the self-destructive language used in Fate Is You at the beginning of the album. But this relapse does end up having an interesting effect in turning the character back into that examination headspace. She begins to notice to an alarming degree the absolute wasteland of the world around her, a mirroring and escalation of Tell Me All Your Lies in Song 9, Higher. One of the wordiest songs on the album, this song is also intensely political. Nearly every song up to this point could be taken in alternative contexts that stray away from definitive statements one way or another. This one can't. This is biting, scathing remarks on America and society as a whole. The second verse alone criticizes the government for army enlistment, claiming the land of the free until you're 18 and shipped off to foreign lands forced to fight for your country. Another later verse calls out forced conformity, pointing to the rising waves of violence against those deemed too different from the norm, including but likely not limited to LGBTIQA individuals, people of color, people of other religions, and God forbid, people who don't speak English. An interesting aspect of this specific section is found in a line preceding the assimilate or die section, where the singer points to the ever-shifting nature of American idealism, or the idea that the American dream is only ever just a dream, a phantasmic pipe dream, a web spun of a few big stories hiding all of the failures and failings of the system behind that beautiful facade. So much for freedom when your interests have changed. America, when I was a child in school, was always described as the melting pot, the place where cultures and ideas mix and blend to form the unique American identity, a blending of all of the best parts of all of the rest of the world. It was only coming out of school and into the real world did I learn that this is only true in theory rather than practice, or rather it's more that specific parts of cultures are cherry-picked from the people who present these new ideas. Then, the people who presented them are left behind, faded to oblivion for refusing to hegemonize, or rather just not fitting a false ideal. The American culture then at times becoming cheap facsimiles of other cultures that many Americans then turn around and resent or rant about or even murder. And this happens so often as to nearly become routine, expected even. A key part of the song is that idea of becoming numb, a consequence of living in a world where this kind of stuff seems to happen a lot. Take a listen to the bridge. Poor man, rich man, take them as they come. They all want to die when the day is done. 
They all want to die when the day is done. There's a pretty significant rise in nihilistic tendency recently, a feeling that one's own actions are inherently not worth it due to the problem seemingly being beyond reach. And the song is living in that space, as the choruses all tend to point out that things seem to be getting worse, that the flames just keep growing higher without any real indication on a way to stop that. And this trend of numbness continues on into the namesake of the album, Hellscape on 9th Street. By far the most lyrically dense song on the album, this is also an interesting turning point, as well as being the end of the rebellion section. The rebellion, after all, by this point, has been largely turning into nearly just giving up. And again here, the performance of the music is in full force. We are entirely in a song that deals with something bigger than romance. But there's an underpinning of romance here that has begun to snake its way in, which is something we mentioned before. The key nature of this song is connecting oneself's struggles to the struggles of the world, and realizing that giving up would be easy, but is fundamentally a worse way to live. Connecting the hole in her chest to the hole in the street, she is pointing out that her lack of a connection is as fundamental to her identity as the lack of infrastructure is as fundamental to the totality of her community. Ignoring either problem will just make them worse, just as much as it's hard to find the solution, some metaphor for life riddled in the sky, but that it's important to try and understand it anyway, as she, granted frustratingly, does at the end of the song. There's still a sense of fatalist mentality, with many references to either being numb or feeling the weight of the world slowly drive the pressure on. Take a listen to the second verse. And if there ever was a sign that judgment day was finally here, I was immune to any and all shock, confounded blatant fear. I was immune to any and all shock, confounded blatant fear. Despite seeing a vision of herself falling deep below the water, a sign of judgment day, she lacks concern. There's no impetus for fear or any feeling of surprise at this happening. This felt like it was going to happen no matter what, what with the doomsday messaging constantly being broadcast. But this going through the motions must mean something. These constant fights to stay aware and stay alive must not be for nothing. And as the character explores these thoughts, signing soulless leases, but for whatever reason, trying to understand those metaphors in the sky, she begins to come around to an idea of purpose. Aimless purpose, but purpose nonetheless. And finally, in the final section of the album, she seems to arrive at at least some meaning, or if not even that far, some reason for existence. She finds love. In the first song of the final section, the hope section, called It's a Magical View.
What a bouncy song. After the mostly lows of the rebellion realization section, it's nice to have a significant high. And truly, what a high. The song absolutely sings with energy, bright and cheerful about the new refreshing perspective granted by someone else, especially someone you adore or love. It has the passionate energy rivaling fate as you, but the song very clearly differentiates itself through its examination of the relationship in a positive, constructive way, even going so far as to dismantle the ideas of relationships she had before, with the line, wrecking havoc on what I knew and painting over in shades of you. Really, there's not a whole lot more to say about this song other than it almost approaches a feeling of rampant giddiness. The singer even talking about being so ferociously in love that she doesn't even want to sleep for fear I'm missing anything. But this is a substantial difference to the last two songs, where there was an apathy to the length of her life, now excited about what's ahead. And this is continued and solidified in the following song, Four Lane Traffic Love Letter. But rather than being a giddy song, this song goes the extra distance to explain the how and general why this relationship ended up blossoming. Just from the beginning alone, we get an understanding of the character's journey. She's got a hunch in her back and a fire in her eyes And she's crossing four-lane traffic There's a life on the other side of this hopeless divide And nothing's gonna keep her from it, no And she's driving a hunch in her back and a fire in her eyes. It's clear this character has gone through a lot, as we've witnessed throughout the album. Battered and bruised and angry and nearly defeated but persevering, she fights across the dangerous, multi-directional gauntlet of life, the four-lane traffic, for the promise of life on the other side of this hopeless divide. And really, the song is introducing love almost as a form of rebellion itself. Rebellion against that apathy and gut-wrenching fear that permeates society. It's made clear that waiting for something to happen is pointless, a waste of time that could lead to nothing, that the true path to happiness may be to make it for yourself in spite of the shit of the world. And as if to rally home that Point, the bridge is merely the repetition of the line, and if to exist is to suffer, I'm gonna love her. Basically, if everything is going to suck anyway, why wait around alone and experience that suckiness alone? Why not love and be loved and have that connection be at least a little light in the darkness? And finally, we've reached the zenith of the character's growth here. In the final song in the album, going out with a bang instead of a whimper on Fuzzy Socks? I'm cute little name for a song that is anything but soft and gentle. One of the most rhythmically and musically diverse songs in the album, it breathes life and hope, and that diversity is actually a functionally important aspect of the song. Remember when we were talking about the two styles of song in the album? The standard rock-adjacent songs and the more performative ones, and their subsequent connections to romance and societal conversation respectively? 
Well, we didn't mention this song at all. And the reason for that is because it actively mixes both styles. A coexistence has formed here, an exploration of both society and romance, and the final intersection of both ideas that had been circling around each other for the entire album. Now, a key part of the song is a raging insecurity in the main character that she is actively fighting against, fearing the lack of a step-by-step guide or how-to that will help explain all she needs to say to her new love. Interestingly, this is almost a direct antithesis to words, where she was unable to find exactly the right way to end a relationship, now finding it difficult to clearly explain just how much she wants to be in it. But rather than succumb to that insecurity, rather than be consumed by her violent love or fall into a pit of self-deprecation or fear of the world ending or whatever, she instead just melts into the connection. She asks her partner to hold her, tell her that things won't be as bad, and let them look up at the beauty of the stars and just for a moment not have to think, refusing to acknowledge the spiraling of the world, a protest of its power over them, over her, that she has the capacity to make life and love for herself, despite everything that's going on. And most importantly, an understanding that she is not just defined by this relationship either, that she is functionally her own person, but that she doesn't have to sacrifice love for that. Take a listen to the end of the chorus. Tell the world of what we've made when I'm a girl who's unafraid. Look at the brightness of our love here, the formation of it despite circumstances, and also look at what it's done for me. Allowed me to rebel against that apathy, against that nihilistic, fatalistic view of the world that threatened to swallow me whole, to grow inside my chest like a pothole until it swallowed that path, that specific road to change entirely. And so, with one final exclamation of the line, when I'm a girl who's unafraid, the album in its entirety this vast hellscape of society and modern romance, this hellscape finally comes to an end. An extensive exploration of modern people, specifically modern young people, and their Catch-22 being caught between the intensely human drive to love and grow connections and the existential dread and fear that if they focus on anything other than the future that's burning away, there will be nothing left. And in this tug of war between responsibility and desire, of apathy and hope, this album explores a version of a solution. That in this fight, allowing yourself to have a connection, to grow love and foster hope, is an act of rebellion against the oncoming tide, the floods and fires of the future. That allowing yourself that space acts as a respite to grow and develop and learn and breathe, to break out of the fear of a lack of clarity or purpose or reason. That in our pursuit of that which fulfills us, we can find hope that will lead us down a path that may lead to something better in that fearful future. One we can hope to be less fearful of when we learn that the true purpose in life, that the fundamental truth of humanity, is to love the people around you and find a path forward together.
Thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode. Just a quick wrap up here this time, as rather than a usual conversation section, I'd instead implore you to check out our interview with the band. Released just a week ago, it is an explorative venture into the beginnings of the band, the making of this album, and their aspirations for the future. It was an incredibly special experience to be able to be a part of this stage of their journey, and I wish them all the best in the years to come. And maybe have a chance to check in whenever their inevitable second album album drops to the masses. Until then, we'll still be making episodes, and there's already 14 others to listen to before this one, to get your fix of album concept conspiracies. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, comments on previous ones, or bits of advice for the show as we venture forth, you can reach us on most socials at AJ Throughline, or find us on Facebook, or leave us a review on your podcast site of choice, or just like yell out your complaint outside, and maybe I'll be passing by someday and give you a little nod in passing. A serendipitous moment of fleeting acknowledgement. We are thrilled that you clicked on our podcast today, and hopefully we prove to you that we're worthy of that click in the months and years to come. Until next time then, have a great day, and thanks so much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.